You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. How has how Daniel been treating you so far? <laughs> so we don't have 49 verses for today. We have 30, which is a lot better. Uh, I'm hoping to actually read all verses, maybe not walk through them, not unpack all of them, but unpack some of them. Uh, so we're gonna, I'm going to try to do that um, for, for today. Um, so if you've got a Bible or you've got a device, which is less spiritual, but at least it's something, please find Daniel 3. Um, you'll find this fascinating book in the Old Testament. So we're spending 12 weeks um, one chapter each week in the great book of Daniel. And, but before we get into chapter 3, uh, let me just summarize chapter 1 and chapter 2 just so we understand chapter 3 a little bit better. Chapter 1, the year is 605 B.C., 605 B.C., so about 2,600 years ago in the Middle East. God's people are living in the nation of Israel, a promised land that God had designed for them to live in. Uh, God gave them leaders and commands, and by the way, that was for their own good. God is good. But they were disobedient, as we know, and as we read through the Old Testament, they were defiant. They rebelled against God for about 490 years. God is super patient, but eventually his patience wore thin, and just as he promised, he allowed them to experience judgment and justice uh, with, uh, you know, from a, for, with an invasion of a foreign uh, army, foreign kingdom, foreign king. This nation would be the nation of Babylon, which is uh, modern-day Iraq, uh, led by a godless king named uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I know that it w- there were a few chuckles as I said this. That's how I pronounce it. Uh, so, if, you know, some of you still get a kick out of it. I can say Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> but I may just slip up and say Nebuchadnezzar, whatever. Don't judge me. I think my version is closer to the truth, to the, how you pronounce it. But anyways, no, it's not? Okay, Lucas is, the teacher had spoken, so <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, okay. So King Nebuchadnezzar and his army plunders the temple takes everything that belongs to the Lord uh, and enslaves a number of God's people. They are forced to now make a seven, around 700-mile walk from Israel to Babylon. Included in that number was Daniel and his three friends, uh, whom uh, Daniel, whom the book is named after. Uh, now we'll see the three friends. They actually take center stage in our chapter today, chapter 3. Daniel is not really mentioned much in, or at all in this chapter. They arrive in Babylon. They are chosen for the honor of serving at the king's court, and that's because they have high IQ, high EQ. They're good-looking, and they came from royal families. Now, the question is, how will they worship and serve God when they don't get the life that they want? And that's the same for you and I. None of us will ultimately get the life that we want, fleshly speaking. And, And the question is, how will we respond um, and these young men, they remain loyal to the Lord. That's exactly what we see under incredible circumstances, and we're going to see that today. What about us? When the heat is turned up, what about us? And by the way, they are renamed, they are brainwashed, they, they are sent to the University of Babylon to learn the Babylonian way of life. And then in chapter 2, the king gets a dream, and he cannot interpret this dream, and he's really bugged by that. So he brings together... Uh, all the guys that, you know, from his sort of religious, spiritual advisory team, and they they cannot interpret the the dream either. So the king sends out a death sentence to all the wise men in the land because no one can tell his dream or what it means. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. And by the way, from chapter 1 to chapter 2, there are uh, historians say and commenters say that there are about three years. So chapter 1 to chapter 2, three years. From chapter 2 to chapter 3, 17 years. So now we're 20 years into the life of Daniel. He's probably in his uh, mid-30s to late 30s at this point in chapter 3. Just I think that's a good piece of information to kind of um, learn about kind of the backdrop of this, of this story. We also learn that in chapter 2, Daniel interprets this dream, the dream of the king. 
He saves everyone's life, the life of all wise men in the land, and he gives the revelation to the king. We then learn that he is promoted, his friends are promoted as well, and everything is according to plan, because God, in, if I may say this, God has his servant and servants in Babylon as missionaries. Let's think of it like that. And what we're going to see in chapter 3 is that everything God creates, same counterfeits. Whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. He is a fraud. This theme of Satan being a fraud and the fact that he is a counterfeit, we see actually throughout the whole Bible. But we see it especially in this book, the book of Daniel. God creates a kingdom ruled by King Jesus. Babylon is the counterfeit of that kingdom ruled by Nebuchadnezzar, who's a counterfeit Jesus. And Daniel and his friends have to choose between the real and the counterfeit. And in order for them to make this or an excellent life-altering choice, it takes discernment, it takes wisdom. And we are in the same situation, let me tell you. We need to constantly choose between the counterfeit and the real. And we need discernment and we need wisdom from God to be able to do that. Okay, let's start in Daniel 3. That was just a summary of what's going on, and I wish I, would be able, I wish I could say more. There's so many details that we're leaving out, it's just unreal. But verses 1 to 3, Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, looking at the counterfeit king and looking at the counterfeit kingdom. So let me just, we'll just um, get on reading and unpacking this beautiful chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on a plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar, I want to say both at the same time, so just bear with me. This name is just giving me a hard time. Um, so they came to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered from, for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar uh, had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here's the counterfeit king. But the real king is King Jesus, we know that, who has a kingdom. And he rules over politically and spiritually. And ultimately, we know that this, our real king, King Jesus, um, he will return. And that's the promise. He will return. And this was the promise and the prophecy in the previous chapter, chapter 2, that he is coming again. And ultimately, when all is said and done, Jesus will rule as king of kings and lord of lords. What an amazing promise, isn't it? What we learn in chapter 2 is that... Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar determines what he doesn't, that he doesn't want Jesus to come. At least that's what we deduce from that. And he doesn't want Jesus' kingdom to come. So instead, he's going to set up his own counterfeit kingdom with himself as king. I mean, he, from the interpretation of the dream, he knew exactly that all the kingdoms that, that uh, want to make it, you know, uh, as high as God, in a sense, you know, they are going to be brought down. He knew that that was going to happen. And because he conquered many other uh, people's people and groups and, and nations um, that were probably still committed to their language to some extent, to their tradition, their history, their religion, their family, their ethnicity, he wanted to make sure that he would rule politically and spiritually and that he would rule over all the people and they would worship him as the most high God. This is basically what dictators do. They want to eradicate the freedom of religion, and then religion becomes subservient to the state. And then the state uses and manipulates the church or religious institutions to create some sort of a dictatorship and some sort of a countership, counterfeit kingdom. That's exactly what's going on here in, in chapter 3. He wants total control to rule over the lives of everyone in his kingdom. So what does he do? He sets up a massive statue of himself. Let me just say this, he probably did really good when it comes to self-esteem in elementary school. He woke up one day and he said, I think that the world needs is a 90-foot statue of me. That's what the world is missing. And it should be made out of gold. 
He may have thought, I am more powerful than the God of the Jewish people, of Daniel and his friends, uh, because I stole his gold. I plundered the temple and I have his gold. So I will melt it down. I will create a statue in my honor showing that I am the most high God. I'm speculating that he said that. Now, the statue that he built was 90 feet tall. It's on a plane, likely on a base. If that's the case, historians say that. Uh, we're talking about 9, 10, 11 stories high. And if you lived in that day, most people, you know, lived sort of at ground level. Not too many skyscrapers in that time. This was a towering and magnificent sight to look at. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar thought, I, I don't like what God says he's going to do. Therefore, I am going to rewrite history. My kingdom will rule forever. He's trying to be eternal. He's trying to set up heaven on earth, I think. And, and to be honest with you, the reality is we're all looking to do that in different ways, at different degrees, in different degrees. We're all trying to set up some sort of heaven on earth. We're all trying to find paradise, and we're all trying to find that place where everything is according to our longing. Make no mistake, Nebuchadnezzar's heart is everyone's heart apart from God. I really believe that. Changing our heart and making us new in him. So here's what we need to know. God tells us what is going to happen, and no one, no one can change that. No one can change that. He is God. The Bible tells us Jesus is coming. He will set up a kingdom that never ends. And you will arise. All of us would rise from our grave and we will go either to heaven or to hell. That is what the Bible says and it's very clear. Some people say, I think we can fix the hell part. That is immovable. An immovable future that God promises in the story of Nebuchadnezzar is only God tells you what the future holds. It is absolutely written in stone and irrevocable. In addition, kind of an interesting detail to at least mention at this point. Where does this, all of this happen? Kind of, I kind of mentioned it in passing. Modern day Iraq. And what's interesting is that it goes all the way back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and we see in chapter 10 and 11 in Genesis, there's a guy named Nimrod, uh, Lucas actually touched on, on this, and he sets up the first nation-state cult. And he sets up the city of Babel, which has in the center a high tower, the Tower of Babel, we may have heard of that. You, uh, it is the counterfeit kingdom, worshiping him as a counterfeit god, it is all demonic, it is all evil. 1,500 years later, in that same place, Daniel 1 calls it Shinar, that is ancient Babylon. So 1,500 years later, the, the same spirit provokes uh, Nebuchadnezzar to do the same thing as Nimrod, to set up a great city that is a counterfeit heaven on earth. And all of this is, I believe, the depraved heart of men on full display, wanting to become God. What I want to say, what do I want to say by this? There are various times, I believe, in seasons where supernatural forces are at work behind human history, which is why we see patterns throughout history, because times and places and people change, but the spirits working behind them remain the same. Now, let's pause for a few minutes and articulate briefly just three things that are, I think, obvious so far in the story of Daniel. Number one, only the real king knows and controls the future. Only the real king, which is King Jesus, knows and controls the future. God, God in chapter 2 said, There's, uh, here's the future. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 says, I have a different rendering of this future. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it my way. The reality is that only God, our God, knows and controls the future. Right? The future that Nebuchadnezzar tries and tried to create as the most powerful dictator on planet earth at that time didn't really work out for him it didn't he did not have the power to do so because nothing can overcome an all-powerful god and his intent for the future number two everyone wants to be a king with a kingdom that they rule over and control everybody wants to be a king with a kingdom that they rule over and control we all do i think we all do to an extent if you look at Nebuchadnezzar and are like, you know, I can't believe he did that. And if you, 
if you had the power in his money, well, you would probably be experiencing the same thing to a certain degree. This is where ultimately, I believe, he wants to be a king. He wants to, be a, he wants to have a kingdom, and he wants total control. And with all due respect, and I'm, in that, and I'm in that category too, we all do this to some degree. Some of us do it at work. We try to set it up so that we're in full control. And when it doesn't work, we try to do the same thing at home. And when that doesn't work, we bring this, this heart condition and attitude to a different place or arena of life. Where do you think that most of our fights and most of our arguments and conflicts come from? Not all of them, but a lot of them. From a sick heart that deep down inside wants its own kingdom and wants to be in control. Or we can just call this whole thing pride because that's what it is. And number three, people who don't know God end up worshiping other people. If you don't know God, you'll end up worshiping other people. King Nebuchadnezzar says, everybody bow down and worship me. This image that I have created, this is me. Bow down and worship me. We're not supposed to worship a human being or the image of any human being. The book of Colossians in the New Testament says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. If you want to worship someone, worship Christ. If you want to worship the image of something, worship Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. But the reality is that people that don't know how to worship God, people that don't know God, they worship people. And it's inevitable. We call this fear of men, uh, people-pleasing, codependent relationships. You're in control. I exist to meet your needs. And please don't pour out your wrath on me. I just live for your pleasure. How should I bow down to you? That's what basically we're saying. This is not just a Babylonian way. This is a... This is a human way. This is a, 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 an eternal problem, not just a historical problem. And today we bow down to ideas. We bow down to ideologies. We bow down to organizations. We bow down to the mob and to whatever mainstream media says because we're afraid of what our neighbor might say to us if we dare question the legitimacy of what they are saying. But let's move forward because we still have quite a bit to cover. Let's read uh, verses 4 to 7. So we read 1 to 3. Let's, let's just continue with our reading 4 to 7. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A great preacher said once, and it kind of really stuck to me, uh, Christianity, he said this, and I quote, Christianity is about proposition. And all the other religions are about imposition. I really like that. Let me just unpack that for a second here, because that's exactly what we see in this text here. Um, imposition is convert or die. Proposition is where a man or what a man does, right, when he wants to marry a woman, he proposes a loving relationship. Jesus proposes a loving relationship. The truth is that he does not impose that kind of submission and surrender of the knee without ultimately a surrender and submission of the heart. But see, what King uh, Nebuchadnezzar wants is outward. What Jesus wants is inward. What the king wants is physical posture and physical conformity. What Jesus wants is the heart, and then the posture follows. You, can make, you, cannot, you can make people obey you, sure, but you can't make people love you. They need to make that decision on their own. This is the same spirit that is running, I believe, Islamic terrorism, global jihad, and things like ISIS. They literally show up to the Christians in the same area of Iran and Iraq that the story takes place 2,600 years ago. The same spirit is still at work that he's telling Christians, convert or die. And many are being murdered and martyred. 
we need to know that, that we have a choice to make regarding who our God is and who we will worship. And just know that Jesus proposes a loving relationship. And his rule and kingdom is based upon proposition, not imposition. Let's continue with the reading with the, verse, with the story of verses 8 to 15. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, It is true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands, he says. Now, some of the critics of the Bible will say, that's weird. Where would they get the furnace from? It had to be an immense furnace. Well, I'll tell you possibly from where. From the melting down of the gold that they used to build the statue of gold. <laughs> You need a furnace to melt the gold to create the statue, and likely the furnace is nearby. I did a little research, and to get gold to melt, you probably know this, very interesting, you need the temperature to be right around 2,000 degrees. That is, whew, hot, <laughs> to say the least. And just to give you some perspective, a wood fire can at most burn a third of that temperature, a third. Some commentators and historians say that this furnace that we have here in chapter 3 was possibly shaped like a nuclear reactor. If that's the case, then it would have an opening at the top for the heat to escape, and at the same time, an opening at the bottom to shove the coal in, because you need coals, right, coal, and lots of air movement to get anything to that kind of temperature. In addition, they say that the furnace is probably next to a hill. So they could dump whatever they want to dump in, in this case, people. So they are going to literally throw them into this burning, fiery furnace, which is going to be a couple of thousand degrees. I want you to just to kind of picture that. Because we hear this story, like, oh yeah, they threw them in the fire. Probably like this campfire. No, no, no. It was 2,000 degrees. A bit of a side note here. Did you catch uh, what verse 8 says? Very interesting. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Accused the Jews. Have you heard that before? Or after? <laughs> and then we fast forward a few thousand years and we have the same spirit of Babylon at work in concentration camps in Nazi Germany. The same spirit is at work. I mean, they didn't consider people to be human. Apart from the teaching of the Bible, you don't think that other people's lives matter as much as your life matters. And so you kill them when they are unborn, and then you persecute them after they are born. I'm saying a lot here. And all of that is the spirit of Babylon. They had a fiery furnace then as well in those concentration camps, and people's ashes, people say this, you can go visit would rise up and the wind would carry it over the walls, the walls of the concentration camps where the children of the guards lived and played. The Bible is true. We are not good people getting better. We're not. We absolutely and categorically need a new nature and a change of heart at the deepest level possible from God. We could easily look at people like that and say, I, I, I just can't believe that people are willing to do that. There's that kind of evil in people. I just can't believe it. Or we can be honest and say 
if I had their wealth and power, I would probably do the same thing to some people in my life. I would like to get some of them in some sort of a furnace. And this is where we need to be forgiven by the Lord Jesus. We need a, a heart change from the Lord Jesus, and we need to forgive others and leave them to the Lord Jesus. And this is where the only solution to the spirit of Babylon is the presence of the spirit of God. That's it. That's the only solution. Now, the good news is that there are real worshipers here. Praise God for that. Are there any in our century? Are there any in our time? I think so. There are real worshipers, but they are experiencing what we would call a lot of heat. They turn the temperature up as if it wasn't hot enough, and here's what the spirit of Babylon does. Just hear this out. I know you'll agree with me. I'll just keep turning the heat up on you to get you to conform and bow down. Have you felt that? That's what these men are experiencing, and the, and the pressure is to worship someone or something else other than Jesus, other than God. And so what happens is the historians tell us that likely 300,000 people bowed down in an instance in that time. 300,000 people. Now, that can be officer, but can you imagine seeing that? Can you imagine being there? 300,000 people bowed down except for three. <laughs> Let me just tell you, that takes a lot of courage. 300,000 people bow down, three guys stand up. I find that sometimes only one person bows down and we're ready to follow suit, let alone the pressure of 300,000 people bowing down. You're the only one in the crowd. Just, just let that just sink in. That whole picture, we learned in chapter 2 that these three young men already bowed down before the king of kings. Amen. And they had a habit of bowing down before the king of kings. And when the landscape of your life, my life, is to bow down before the king of kings on a regular basis, we won't bow down before the false kings. But the reality is that you're going to bow down to some king. We are. You're going to bow down to a false king or to the real king. That's why the Bible says, and we sang about this at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God the Father both on the earth and under the earth. Ultimately, you and I, we want to bow down to Jesus and no one and nothing else. Amen? Now, let me, let me ask us this question. Were many of those who bowed down supposed to be believers? There were other Jewish people there. Were these three guys the only believers no there were others it just shows you that sometimes people who say they are believers they will bow down in babylon to babylon once they receive a certain amount of heat and pressure they will compromise their convictions for peace and security instead of the presence of god well we let me just say a couple of things here number one Sometimes to be godly is to be lonely. Sometimes to be godly is to be lonely. If you cannot lose a relationship, if you, if you cannot have conflict, then you cannot worship God. Meaning, what, what do I mean by that? If you're not even willing to give up a relationship, one that probably hurts you and that is not good for you, for the sake of Christ, then for sure we're not godly. For sure. It's a good sign. And number two, when you respond to the, to the spirit of Babylon, you need to respond by the Spirit of God. You can just do it out of the flesh, whatever the flesh wants. Just, let's just look at these three young men, Daniel's friends. They're not arrogant. They're not violent. They're not malicious. They don't attack. They're humble. They're kind. They're gracious. They have the fruit of the Spirit, so much so that even those who oppose them still appreciate them and try to spare them. But I have good news and bad news at the same time, depending on whose team we are. And I'm, I hope and I think I know that we're all on the same team here our king, the real king, King Jesus, the Bible says that he has a hotter fire. The Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. And the Bible says in Luke 12, it's actually Jesus saying this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Let me tell you, the body matters. It does. We should be good stewards of the body. But the soul really matters. Because one day life in the body ends and life in the soul continues. 
Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do to you. They can't touch your soul, but I will warn you whom you shall fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. What he's saying is the real king rules over the body and the soul as well. The counterfeit king and kingdom, all they can do is affect the body. They have no access to the soul. So let's ask this question then. How do these three men overcome this tremendous fear of punishment? You know what the Bible says? By the fear of the Lord. By the fear of the Lord. Lord, help us. Additionally, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Of wisdom. And if you don't have fear of the Lord, eventually your fear will cause you to bow down to someone or something other than the Lord. That's just inevitable. Let's continue our reading with verses 16 to 23. It gets better and better. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. What an answer, O king. But if not, be unknown to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times, as if that wasn't enough, seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, let us translate here. Basically, in plain English, here's what these three men are saying. Our God can deliver us, and even if he doesn't, we're still going to worship him. Whew, that's good. And this is so beautiful. And this is so telling at the same time. Do you know why? Because this should be the heart of every believer. This should be the heart of every believer. Because this is what a true and genuine believer says. God can cure my cancer. Yes, he can. But if he doesn't, I will still worship him. God can heal my marriage, but if he doesn't, I will still worship him. God can bring my wayward child home, but if he doesn't, I will still worship him. God can improve my financial situation, and if he doesn't, I will still worship him. What they're saying is that our God can do anything, but we can't make our God do anything. Because he, we know that he is the sovereign God of the universe, Lord over all. Have you, have you ever had life go in a way that you didn't want to? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to live life on planet Earth for too long. Have you ever found yourself in a situation that was your greatest fear and everything was beyond your control? Yeah, probably. Those are the moments that we need to worship God the most. And, be, and, and behind the whole narrative here, the issue is what? The issue is worship. It, it, it's worship. The whole issue here is worship. It all comes down to worship, and worship is who or what is at the center of your life and my life. Who or what is at the top of your priority list? Who or what is your greatest pursuit and pleasure that answers the worship question? This is a perfect place to say a few things about worship when looking at this chapter. Number one, we don't worship God to get the results we want, but to find God's will. That is so big. We do not worship to get the results we want, but to find God's will. Some people will say, I tried Jesus and it didn't work out. Well, yeah, what, what, what do you mean by you tried Jesus? Well, I prayed for that thing that I really wanted and never, you never responded, never wanted to give it to me. Huh. Yeah, the genuine, wor genuine worshipers of Jesus don't worship God to get the results they want. 
We worship God to find his will. We worship God to glorify him. We worship God to find his will. For these men, it is the will of God for them to be in the fiery furnace and to go through that. It's not their will. It's God's will, and he knows best. Number two, a few things about worship. I think it's just a perfect place to to talk about this. We don't choose suffering, but we choose God's will. We don't choose, we don't go out of our way to suffer. We're not masochists, right? But we choose God's will, even if it includes suffering. And this is exactly what we see, you know, these three men do. They are not seeking suffering. They're not. But they are accepting God's will even when it includes suffering. Number three, if your goal is comfort and ease, you will eventually deny God. If our goal is comfort and ease, we will eventually just deny God. At some point, to walk with the Lord will cause us to choose between comfort and Christ. That will happen. That's inevitable. And these three men, if they, if they bowed down, they, 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 they would have gone comfort and, and ease. It would have gone government jobs and they would, they would eat good food. They would, you know, would have gone peaceful lives and right? everything would be great except for their relationship with God. So what matters most? What matters more? And ultimately, they sacrifice comfort and ease to worship God. Number four, you and I need to be very clear what our goal is. What is your goal? What's my goal in life? Is our goal winning? Is our number one goal succeeding? Is our goal comfort? Our goal is to be faithful to Jesus until we see Jesus and we hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our goal. That is our goal. Not comfort. Sure, that's second, third, whatever, but not our priority. If that means you got to go through hell to get there, we go to hell to get there. Hell, quote unquote, not real help. Because for these three guys, this is as close to hell as they will ever be. And for King Nebuchadnezzar, this is as close to heaven as he will ever be. For Nebuchadnezzar, all that, all that awaits for him is the ultimate furnace. For these men, even if God does not spare them, and we see that God is with them through it, what awaits for them is King Jesus on the other side of this earthly furnace. Two more, two more things about worship. We're at number five if you are counting. Someone will always show up in your life, in my life, to demand that you bow down. <laughs> Again, inevitable. Someone will always show up in your life and in my life to, that will demand that you bow down. Something, some person. I'm just telling you, there are people that want to be Nebuchadnezzar. There are things that, that want to be Nebuchadnezzar. And they go like, do, do, do what I say, otherwise I will pour my wrath on you. I'm going to turn up the heat to pressure you to bow down to me. This can be a boss. This can be a parent. This could be a domineering spouse. This could be a boyfriend, girlfriend. This could be a cruel older sibling. The point is this. Don't bow down except to Jesus. It's not worth it. It'll hurt a lot more in the long run. Trust me. Well, don't trust me. Trust the Bible. I said this earlier, but remember in chapter 2, they bowed down to worship God, so now they can stand up to worship the real king, right? The question is, is, is knowing who to bow down and who to stand before. The truth is that we, when we bow down before the Lord Jesus and we make that in a lifestyle, that gives us the power and the courage to stand, to stand before any other counterfeit king. And the more we do that, the more we spend time bowing down to the real king, the more it gives us power and courage to stand, to stand before those who want to take Jesus' place to, that make us bow down. And the last one here about worship, God will de deliver us either from death or through death. This is my favorite one. God will deliver you either from death or through death. But the promise is that he's going to deliver us. When they say our God will deliver us, these three men, that doesn't mean that they're going to live this earthly life in comfort and, and, and free from sickness and challenges. No, no. It could mean two things. First option, that God is going to deliver us from it through a miracle, right? That could mean, that, that's one option. Or he's going to deliver us through it, through the difficult situation, Meaning we are going through it, but he's right there with us side by side, but he's going to get us through it. 
Either way, life or death, the deliverance is guaranteed through life or death, and these options are open to God's decision, not ours. And so God might get you around it, but let me just say, and yes, let's pray that God will get us around it. But most of the time in the Bible, God gets us through it. That's what I see. I'm just telling you what I see. Let me give you some examples. Noah goes through the flood. Right here, Daniel and his friends go through Babylon. Jesus goes through the cross. The sad reality is that there is an escapist theology that basically says, if times are hard, God will get you out of it. No, God will get us through it. It's just how it works. Much, if not most of the time. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death through it, we don't usually get to fly over it. Let's continue with the last part, verses 24 to 30. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king, he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the king's councils gathered together and saw that the fire had, had, had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb to limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way than the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Here's what we, there's a lot there, I know. Here's what we need to know. Jesus gets into things that nobody wants to get into. And Jesus stands with people that nobody wants to stand with. We need to be encouraged by this this morning, church. We need to be encouraged this morning because the reality is that God can show up in some extraordinary and supernatural ways. We need to hear that again, again and again and again. Additionally, Jesus shows up to Nebuchadnezzar and he still doesn't believe in change and surrender. He may just have like some sort of, oh, wow, your God is amazing, awesome, but I'm still not going to surrender to him. You hear people say this all the time. If Jesus were alive in my life, I would, be, I would so be a believer. Oh, yeah, sign me up. The truth is that Jesus has already shown up in people's lives. They just need to surrender. They just need to believe. King Nebuchadnezzar is like, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods, he says. Actually, you're close, sir. It is the son of God. His name is Jesus. He's right there in front of you. And you still choose not to surrender to him. That's a lot of people today. These guys go into an oven, a furnace that can go 2,000 degrees, and they get not a scratch on them. You know what this is? Yeah, it's called a miracle. They don't happen all the time. And God shows that he would work in a miraculous way this time and show his glory through a miracle. God does that at times. Let's fast forward all the way to Jesus for a few minutes. Because there's an interesting connection here. Satan, who is behind the spirit of Babylon, we know that, shows up and gives Jesus the same test of Daniel 3. Satan comes to Jesus to tempt him and to test him. And we see this in Matthew 4, if you want to read it at home. He says, here are all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus. I am the king of them all. They can be all yours if you do one thing, Jesus. Bow down and worship me. Jesus was given two options. 
bow down and worship Satan and rule over all the kingdoms of the earth. That is the pleasure path. That's the pleasure path. Or you can choose the pain path. You can suffer, go to the cross, Jesus, or, and die a humiliating death so that you can be raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of, the, of, the, of, of God the Father, ruling and reigning in the kingdom of God. You can choose that. Jesus, just like Daniel and his friends, chose the pain path because that was God's will. Because let me tell you, and I know you'll agree with me, not easy to do, but it's better in the will of God, even if it means suffering every second of this life. Way, way, way better. Did I say way better? Way, way, way better than pleasure every minute of this life, but ending up in hell. Way better. Way better. Do you know what's interesting? Jesus does something for us that is even greater than what he did for these three young men. And what he did for these three men, he got into the fiery furnace with them. Picture that. What Jesus did for us, he went to the cross alone and died our death in our place. Jesus didn't drag us to the cross to endure the wrath of God. The three men went into the fiery furnace to endure the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar, and Jesus stood with them. When Jesus Christ went to the cross to endure the wrath of the Father, he didn't stand with us. He stood for us. And he endured the full wrath of God. He died, he was buried, and then just as these men walked out of the fiery furnace, so did Jesus. He walked out of his tomb. And Jesus ascended into heaven where he is ruling and reigning as king of kings and lord of lords, coming again to bring a kingdom that will never end. In the meantime, I want to ask you this in the end. What does Daniel mean for you so far? It's very curious to me that Peter, Jesus' lead disciple, says this in 1 Peter 1, 6, 7. It's a verse or a couple of verses that we're not we're not estranged to here at our church. We brought these up. I know that I've, I've talked, I've touched on these for a few months ago. This is what Peter says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You have been grieved by various trials, have you? Let me ask you today, what grieves you and what trials are you in right now? He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold. Nebuchadnezzar's greatest possession was gold. For the believer, our greatest possession is faith. Faith. You cannot take gold with you in the kingdom of God. We cannot. But you will take faith with you into the kingdom of God. We need to know that our faith is more important than our gold, than our cars, than our houses, than our bank accounts, even than our families. Peter says, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. He's using the language of Daniel here. And what he says is this, just as Nebuchadnezzar and the spirit of Babylon was seeking to destroy these men through some sort of a fiery trouble, fiery furnace, so Satan is going to turn up the heat at times in your life, seven times hotter at times. And you will find yourself in some sort of a furnace of affliction. Have you been there? Have you been there? Are you there now? We all had, we all have or we will have a fiery furnace set at different degrees. may not be 2,000 degrees hot. And for some of us, it's marital, a marital furnace, or financial furnace, or spiritual furnace, or familial furnace. We all have a fiery furnace set at different degrees. And you feel it because it's hot. And what Peter is saying here is this, that same fire... I want us to really pay attention to this. That same fire that the enemy wants to use to consume us, God will use to purify us. What the devil meant for evil, God means it for good. I'll say that again. The same fire that the enemy wants to use to consume you and us, God will use to purify us. 
And this is the way that they would purify gold. Um, they would heat, heat it up and, take, and then take the dross out. The dross is that's all the foreign substances that need to be taken out of, of just to purify gold. What Peter is saying is that you have genuine faith. You have genuine faith, but there's some dross in it. There's some Babylon in it. There's some flesh in it. There's some pride. There's some selfishness in it. And sometimes what God allows, it's a bit of a furnace of affliction so that it purifies our faith. Do you, do, you know, do, you, do you know what today should teach us out of all the things that we said? That now we know that we know that we know that we know that we can trust in the Lord Jesus. That we can trust in the Lord Jesus. And here's the good news. Whatever fiery furnace you find yourself in, Jesus Christ comes to stand with you in it and to purify your faith. How awesome is that? Which is more precious than gold. It's more precious than gold. I don't know what you're in, but let me tell you this. Sometimes you don't even see Jesus till you are in the furnace. And that's the point, so that you can see Jesus. Sometimes you don't even know that you need Jesus until the heat is really turned up, is cranked up. And some of us need to be reminded, and I really, I know I need to be reminded of this. We need to know, you need to know, we need to know that he will never, ever leave us. He will never forsake us. He will be with us always, even to the end of the age, even through the fiery furnace. Isn't that a beautiful promise? From death or through death, from the fiery furnace or through the fiery furnace, that's his call. That's his decision. Let's pray that God would help us to fully surrender our will to God, to fully surrender everything of us to him. We can trust him. He is good. We can trust him. He is so good. We can trust him. He is good. Would you stand with me? I'd like to pray for us. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.